invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew is the very first book in the New Testament. If you'd like to find it using the red Bibles in the chairs around you, you'll find our passage today on page 824 and 825. It's Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Harper family had a good week away last week being with some family and uh, friends down in St. Louis. We were able to stay there over last Sunday and worship uh, with a good friend of mine, PCA pastor Mike Higgins at South City Church. Uh, that church is a, uh, a beautiful church. It's in the historic Shaw District uh, neighborhood of St. Louis. It's made up, it's a congregation that is just a beautiful tapestry of uh, multiple ethnicities of God's people gathering to worship the one true King. Uh, We got to sing some old gospel spirituals and uh, there may or may not have been some swaying going on in the Harper pew uh, last Sunday. Uh, But it was a wonderful time to be together with God's people there and we are very thankful to be back with God's people here uh, at Trinity this morning. I'm going to read from Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16, down through verse 30. And behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess Give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, both physical and spiritual, that we might see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Take your word 
through the work of your Holy Spirit, who we pray to be present with us right here in these moments and impress your word deeply in our hearts and our minds. Help us, Father, to understand the gospel in deepening ways that we might love and obey you in ever-growing ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are jumping back into our summer sermon series. You know if you are here as a regular uh, person that comes to Trinity that our normal uh, routine, our bread and butter here at Trinity is to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section. During the summer, I like to take uh, a little bit of a more of a thematic uh, turn and do something a little more theme oriented, still looking at Scripture, still preaching through Scripture, but looking at more thematic elements. And this summer, we've been looking at the seven deadly sins. And so far, we have covered pride, envy, anger, and sloth. And then in the next two weeks, we're going to cover gluttony and lust. And today we are thinking about and reflecting on the deadly sin of greed. Greed. The dictionary definition of greed is an intense, selfish, excessive desire for something, especially wealth, power, or food. It actually has connections with the Latin word that we get our word avarice from, which means an inordinate or excessive desire for gain or covetousness. Several years ago, I decided that I wanted to buy just a simple charcoal grill. I had an old gas grill that had multiple burners and Racks to put your food on and a storage unit underneath and side burners. It was all banged up. It had made the journey with us from Indiana here to Minnesota. And I was tired of having to deal with all the propane issues and the fixing all of the wires and all of the various things. And I just wanted something simple, just a simple charcoal grill, no on off switch. When you're ready to cook, you put the charcoal in, you light it. When it gets hot enough, you put the food on it, you cook it. When it cools down, you put the cover on it and put it away for the next time. Just something simple. And so I decided to go to the store and get something not over the top, but just something simple. Well, I walked into the store and there found the area where the grills were located. And I was confronted with 20 or 30 different models and choices to pick from, each one more shiny than the next, each one with more features than the next, each one more expensive than the next. They even had grills that you could connect with your smartphone via Bluetooth. I ended up leaving with just my simple charcoal grill, but I'll tell you this, it wasn't easy. (laughs) It is so easy to be lured, enticed by the bigger, the better, the more shiny, what the neighbor has, what someone on a magazine has, what someone in social media has. It's so easy to become greedy, to want something that we have not been given. It was around that time that somebody, I don't remember who it was, sent me an article that was in the 2006 New York Times, May of 2006 New York Times. It was an article that was written called Pimp My Grill. 
It was an article that, uh, in the article, it interviewed a man and woman named Mo and Connie Howdy of York, Maine. And they had just gone through the process of purchasing the Kalamazoo Bread Breaker. They spent $11,290 on this super grill. 154,000 BTUs. That's like 45,000 watts per hour. Six and a half feet wide. Over 600 pounds in weight. Equipped with a dual fuel infrared rotisserie cradle system. Temperature gauges that reached a thousand degrees. Letting you know that you could melt lead with this particular grill. The Howdies had to double the capacity of their home gas line in order to accommodate their new grill. The Howdies said it is very, very powerful. You can cook a whole turkey in 90 minutes. At the end of the article, the author said this. One, this was an example of one of the increasingly popular breed of super grills that are becoming backyard status symbols as Americans, mostly the male variety, peacock around with an object that harkens back to the earliest days of human existence. It is so easy to be lured and enticed into the desire for something bigger and better, an excessive, inordinate desire for something more. It could be for something that we don't have that we want, or it could be for something that we have that we don't want to ever lose. Greed. The the sin of greed can plague our hearts whether we have lots of wealth or very little wealth. We can be greedy about our money and we can be greedy about many other things too. Our possessions, our time, our talents and skills, our positions and even people. David Garland, in his commentary on this story about the rich young man, says that Jesus' confrontation with the rich man warns our materialistic age that possessions beget hazards even when we are not engrossed in them. Wherever money is at stake, there is a danger to life because it is not a neutral or harmless commodity. Wealth possesses high voltage and explosive energy since so many crave it and it strikes reverence in the heart. No Christian is immune from the danger of mammon. Covetousness or greed is like a virus that takes residence in the soul and begins slowly to work its destruction. Greed, covetousness is like a virus that takes residence in the soul and begins slowly to work its destruction. I wonder if any of us can feel that this morning. What I want us to do this morning as we look at this passage in Matthew chapter 19 and to consider this deadly sin, greed, is to look at the story and, and remember what, it actually, what actually happened and took place with this man interaction with Jesus. To consider what really is the heart of the problem. 
to think about the solution and then to reflect on what the result should be for God's people. So first of all, let's remind ourselves of this story. The story is actually recorded for us in three of the four Gospels. In Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, we have a story. And as the story is put together by all three of those authors, uh, we get to know a little bit about this man. We don't know a tremendous amount about him. We know that he is a man. We know that he's wealthy. We know that he's young. We can get that from Matthew. Luke tells us that he was a ruler of some sort. And he also tells us that he was extremely wealthy. But we also know that this man, this young, wealthy man, was humble and respectful. He came up to Jesus and addressed him. Here in Matthew, as teacher, Mark tells us that he came up and actually knelt before Jesus and called him good teacher. Not only was he humble and respectful, he was also knowledgeable and obedient. We know that he is familiar with the Ten Commandments. And that he obeys them. And notice Jesus doesn't question his sincerity when he says that he has been obeying those commandments. This is a a young man who is a genuine, moral, upstanding, conscientious young man. This is the kind of man that Mayo or IBM or the city of Rochester Schaefer Academy would want as one of their employees. This is the kind of man that we would want as one of our neighbors. This is the kind of man that would be a great church member at Trinity. Dedicated and devout and serving. So the man comes to Jesus and asks him a question. We get that at the end of verse 16. What do I have to do? What good deed do I need to do in order to get eternal life? What do I need to do, Jesus, in order to get eternal life and have an assurance and a security in my heart and mind that I am going to get to go to heaven? And Jesus answers the man first in verse 17 by telling him, why are you calling me good? That's what he says in the Mark uh, version. And here he again mentions that only one is good. In Mark he says only God is good. Jesus is not here denying his divinity that he is the second person of the Trinity. But he's addressing a Jewish tradition that called for no one to refer to another person as good for fear that you might blaspheme. So what Jesus is doing is directing this young man's attention to God himself. And he also directs the young man to the Ten Commandments. He mentions several of them. Keep the commandments, he says, and then he rattles off several of them. Primarily the ones that are in the second tablet of the law. Those that were focused on helping to us to serve our neighbor and love our neighbor. So the man responds... I've got those down. Those I have been keeping, but I'm still lacking something. What is it that I'm lacking, Jesus? And so Jesus answers him a second time in verse 21. And it's interesting that in Mark's account, we're told that Jesus looked at the man and loved him. That's profound. He says, there's still one more thing you need to do. You need to sell everything you have give it to the poor and then come and follow me we get the man's response in verse 22 
Matthew tells us that he was sorrowful and he went away sorrowful. That the word there has a connotation of being grieved or pained or distressed. Mark actually uses the word disheartened. He went away disheartened. He was shocked. He was appalled. He was saddened. And why? Why did he go away sorrowful and disheartened? Well, we're told in the passage it's because he had great possessions. He went away sad from the Savior because he was very wealthy. And what we're meant to understand there is that his wealth was more important to him in that moment. Jesus looks around after the young man left and he sees that there's a teaching opportunity with his disciples. And so from verse 23 down through the end of the passage in verse 30, Jesus engages with his disciples. The, the man has left and now he's there talking with his disciples. And Mark tells us that his disciples hearing what happened and watching this young man walk away were amazed. How could Jesus let this guy get away? Jesus addresses them and he tells them a parable to underscore how difficult, how hard it is for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God. And then Matthew tells us that the disciples were not just astonished, they were greatly astonished. They were beside themselves. They were shell-shocked by what Jesus said. And so Peter, as he so often did in those situations, decides to speak up in verse 27. And he says, Jesus, we have left everything for you. We've left our families. We have left our reputations. We have left our businesses. And we are following you. And so Jesus speaks words of encouragement to them in 28 through 30. It's impossible on your own, he says, but with God it's possible. If you're following me, he says, if I am first in your life, then you will be provided for and indeed you will inherit eternal life. This is the story of Jesus' encounter with this young man. And I want us to reflect a moment on this man and what was going on. What was, what was really going on? What was going on below the surface? What was the real problem that caused this young man to walk away? What was the heart of the problem for this man? And I would say it to you this way. The heart of the problem is that there was a problem of the man's heart. The problem for this rich, young, ruling man was not that he was wealthy. The problem was not that he had lots of possessions, lots of money. The problem was that this rich young ruler's wealth was more important to him than Jesus. His ultimate loyalty and trust and love was wrapped around his wealth and his possessions and not around the Savior, Jesus Christ. Nowhere in Scripture are Christians told that they can't be wealthy. Yes, there are reminders in the Scriptures of how much difficulty wealth can bring into the life of people. But there are many passages in the Bible that speak about being good stewards with the wealth that God entrusts to us. Of taking care of our families and of those who are in need. 
The problem was, this man was relying on his own obedience to get into heaven and his own wealth and possessions to give him peace and security in this life. His belief in and his faith in and his relying upon and his loving of Jesus didn't factor into his life. At least not as much as his wealth and possessions. This is greed or coveting at its core. Being ruled more by something than by Jesus. We saw that earlier in our service from Matthew chapter 6. We can't serve two masters. It's impossible to have both money and God being the controlling, most important thing, driving factor in your life. And here's the really depressing reality. We can be greedy about almost anything, not just our wealth and our possessions. We can be greedy about the things that we don't have that we want, and we can be greedy about the things that we do have but can't imagine living without. We can be greedy about our wealth, our possessions, our houses, our cars, our jobs, our families, being single, having a spouse, having success in our job, having a good reputation in the church. So how is it that we know that we're greedy? As a pastor, friend's, a pastor friend of mine says, let me go to meddling a little bit. How do you know when you're greedy? Some of you are familiar with the comedian Jeff Foxworthy. He has this little routine where he says, you might be a redneck if... You might be a redneck if you cut your grass and find a car. You might be a redneck if you own a homemade fur coat. You might be greedy if your financial comfort and security in this life is more important to you than following the Lord's commands in the Scriptures. You might be greedy if your hope in life and your level of contentment in this life is directly tied to the balance in your bank account, the strength of the financial markets, or the value of your retirement funds. You might be greedy if the goal that consumes much of your attention is how you can retire as soon as possible to have a peaceful life of ease. You, you might be greedy if you get incredibly angry or you're filled with despair when things in your life are taken away or lost. You might be greedy if spending time on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat makes you jealous and angry and envious of what other people have. You might be greedy if your financial house isn't in order. You might be greedy if you're living a life, if you're not living a life of incredible generosity with your time and with your treasures and with your talents. You might be greedy if you have things in your life that you're unwilling to give up in order to follow Jesus. And that one really gets at the heart of the matter, does it not? Is there anything in your life 
that you would be unwilling to give up in order to have Jesus. God knew exactly what He was doing by having Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story for us of Jesus' Jesus's interaction with the rich young ruler. Greed is so easy to fall into. It's wanting what we don't have. It's the fear of losing what we do have. And it's a deadly sin. It's a sin that caused this man to walk away sad from Jesus. It's a virus that can rot our souls. So what's the solution? Well, I don't have anything surprising or shocking for you this morning as a solution. I have a solution, but it's not something that is hard to comprehend. But it is something hard and difficult for us fully to take in and believe in our heart of hearts. It's something that is impossible for us, but it is possible for God. The solution is that our treasure in heaven has to be more important to us than our treasures on earth. That's what Matthew 6 told us this morning. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The solution at the core to deal with our greed and to root out the virus that is eating away at our souls is to have our treasure in heaven be more important to us than the treasures of earth. So how do we do that? It means, first of all, that we have to understand how rich we are in Christ. That through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united to Him, we are connected to Him, so that we get what Jesus achieved for us. Full and final payment for all of our sins, past and present and future, and a declaration that we are righteous in God's sight forever. We have eternal life secured and as he reminded Peter and the disciples the blessings of heaven that are being prepared for us are certain and secured and they are ours already even if we don't get to enjoy them quite yet that's part of how we start to have our treasure in heaven be more important to us than our treasures on earth is that we have to understand how truly rich we are in Christ but we also need to understand not only how rich we are in Christ. But we need to understand how Jesus considers us His treasure. Our assurance of grace this morning said, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Why would Jesus leave the riches of heaven? To come to this place and endure everything that he endured and then go to the cross and be killed. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, it was for your sake, it was for my sake. 
that's how much God loves us. That's how much Jesus treasures us. He was willing to leave the riches of heaven for you and for me. The author to the Hebrews says something very similar. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why was Jesus willing to endure the cross and the shame and to go through all that he did? For the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? It is the joy of knowing that he is fulfilling the will of his father in redeeming his people. Do you understand that? Do you, does that grab your heart and your attention to know that as Jesus hung on the cross, what kept him there was your name in front of him? Not in some nebulous way, some group of people. But if you are in Christ this morning, He knows you and He knew you at that very moment when He gave His life on the cross. And that was a joy to Him. He looks at you as His joy, as His treasure. This is the gospel of God's grace and mercy. This is our treasure in heaven. That can never be lost or taken away. And the more that this gospel treasure of grace grips our understanding and our hearts, the less the treasures of this world will have a grip on our hearts and our minds. The only solution to our greed, to our covetousness, is to have the affections of our hearts set on our right and true treasure. Jesus Himself. And when that starts to happen... There are results that will take place in the life of God's people. The first one is, we'll begin to live prepared and willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. I can't find a command in Scripture that says that every single Christian has to sell everything they own and live a life of poverty. Jesus gave this specific command to this specific man because he was... Addressing the man's heart, knowing what he was struggling with, knowing his besetting sin, if you will. But if loving and following Jesus is the most important thing in your life, then everything else will be handled loosely by you. You'll be willing to give up anything and everything that you might have Jesus. And so I would ask you, even as I ask myself, is there anything in your life? Is there anything in your life that you love more than Jesus? Is there anything that you look to for your security and your hope and your peace more than Jesus himself? The second result that will happen as this starts to grip our minds and our hearts in greater and greater ways is we will begin to live radically generous lives. If our ultimate treasure is in heaven, and if we understand that everything that God gives to us is His, is a gift from Him, and if we understand that God calls us to be good stewards with every single thing that He entrusts to us, then our lives should be filled and characterized by incredible, outrageous, profound generosity. Whether with our wealth, with our time, with our talents and skills and abilities. 
You know, the statistics are pretty discouraging about the giving of evangelical Christians. You have to take the statistics with a little bit of a grain of salt, I suppose. I've never done a personal study, but many people have, and most of the studies come back fairly similar. It's somewhere between two and a half and three and a half percent of evangelical Christians' income is given to charities, including the church. Now, I don't know any of the specifics about Trinity. I have no details about who gives or how much. I have to believe that we're actually above average. But in the Old Testament, tithing was just a starting point. And if we take the principle that God continues to show us in greater and greater and greater ways throughout the Bible, His grace and mercy and love... That, that in the New Testament we have an ever, great, an ever greater understanding of His mercy and grace to us, then wouldn't it make sense that we wouldn't be bound just by the Old Testament principle of a tithe? That that would simply be a starting place for us, a jumping off point for us. And in fact, in the Old Testament they had things called offerings which were above and beyond the tithe that was given to the church out of the surplus of what people had. What would it look like for us to be radically generous with what God has given to us to be good stewards with? For some of us, it might mean that we need to get our financial houses in order. We need to get out of debt. We need to start living according to our means. For others, it might mean choosing to lower our standard of living. Or maybe even saying no to some things in order that we might have more to be able to give. Or not having our main goal just piling up money for our retirement. Radical and profound generosity comes as we are more and more overwhelmed by our treasure in heaven, God's grace and love to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. A third result that will begin to happen more and more as we understand our treasure in heaven is we'll realize that God doesn't need anything from us. God is not in need of anything from us. He owns it all. Did you notice that Jesus let this man walk away? That should actually be somewhat shocking. It seems like it was shocking to the disciples. Can you imagine how strategic it would have been to have this man as a benefactor for the disciples and the spread of the gospel? This extremely wealthy, morally upstanding young man perhaps had a long life ahead of him to be able to give and to give and to give so that the gospel, Jesus' ministry, might go forth with more power and more significance. And yet Jesus lets him walk away. Jesus didn't need his money. Jesus didn't need his influence. God doesn't need anything from us, but here's the beauty of it. He gives us the privilege 
and the opportunity and the blessing of using the things He gives to us to be a blessing to God's people and to further the work of God's mission locally and around the world. Lastly, the more that we understand our treasure is in heaven and not here in the treasures of this earth, we'll understand that God requires a lot more of us than just believing that Jesus is a good person and living a good life. This rich young ruler came to Jesus assuming that Jesus was good, he was a moral teacher, and that Jesus could simply tell him, what do I need to do? What good deed do I need to do in order to go to heaven? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? What else am I lacking? What else do I need to do? And Jesus would have nothing of it from this man. He pressed him to see that Christianity is not primarily about something that you do. Christianity is primarily about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Putting your faith in Him, believing in Him, loving Him, following Him, learning about Him. Being a Christian is much more than just having a reverence for Jesus as a good and moral teacher and then trying to do the best you can to keep some of the commandments and hope that it's enough. This is what the gospel of the treasures of, our, of heaven show us, that Jesus lived the life that I was supposed to live but never could and died the death that I deserve to die, rising from the grave, conquering death and sin once for all, and sits at God's right hand, awaiting His return, all because He loves me more than I could ever imagine. And as that begins to grip your hearts, as that begins more and more to become your treasure above all else, then the treasures of this world you'll be able to hold with open hands. Let's pray together. Father, we can see in our own lives and hearts and perhaps in even loved ones the virus that greed is and the way that it causes destruction and a rotting of our souls, of our hearts, of our very lives. And on the one hand, Father, we read the story of this man and we're sad for him if he never came to know faith in the Lord Jesus Christ personally. And yet, Father, we would not simply look to Him, but we would see Him as a mirror to our own hearts and souls. The greed that racks our hearts and souls. I pray, Father, that You would be more precious to us than anything else we have in this life. That You would be more meaningful, more valuable to us. And that as we meditate on that reality and that truth, that You would cause us, Father... To hold the things of this life, of this world, those blessings that you entrust to us with open hands. Enjoying them and using them to serve and love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.